Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. Now marks the end of pumpkin spice season and the beginning of peppermint spice season. Oh boy. Now I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining and holiday-filled Pipes Magazine radio show. I am your host, Brian Levine, and it is uh, the final <laughs> the final show of November. The Christmas holiday season is officially upon us. Yes, our house is decorated and... Uh, Eh, Christmas shopping has begun, but uh, on tonight's show, I'm going to finish up the series of quintessential pipes, and we're going to talk about estate pipes or pipes of the past, uh, older, you know, pipes that you can only get as estates or maybe new old stock. Uh, my guest tonight, we are going to start, and this is fun, uh, story time with the McNeils, both Mike and Mary McNeil talking about McClellan and going... Uh, yeah, going all the way back to uh, pre-McClellan, so you'll you'll have that. This is going to be about uh, four parts, but you're going to get uh, the first part of it on tonight's show. Then we'll have uh, mail uh, music. We'll start off the holiday music season and mailbag and a rant. All that coming up on tonight's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. Uh, remember, a new segment coming up in January. Ask the Pipe Maker with Jeff Grasick of J. Allen Pipes. So email me, Brian at pipesmagazine.com, with your uh, questions that you want to ask Jeff. Uh, so email those to me. And also, if you are thinking about a, uh, you know, thinking about a vacation as a gift, want to go on a cruise, reach out to me, Brian.Levine at MEI-Travel.com. Lots of deals, and, uh, you know, a cruise makes a great gift under the stockings. So uh, reach out to me. I'll help you out. Even if I can't help you out if you're traveling somewhere, hey, I'll give you my advice and my opinions, and those are all free. And remember, when you book with me, it doesn't cost you anything. Uh, you know, wherever you go, they pay me. So you save money, you save time, and even if I don't book with, if you don't book with me, I'll still help you out and give you the best advice I can. So just reach out to me if you're thinking about going anywhere. Uh, lots of deals on cruises right now, just going to say, and uh, that warm weather sure would be good to sit back and smoke your pipe on a warm Caribbean beach somewhere. All right, let's get the show rolling. So everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. There's nothing quite like fishing at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and all right, in the past couple of episodes, uh, a couple of weeks back, I talked about pipes that I think are, you know, quintessential that you that you should try to own at least once and give them a try. Uh, now, this is going to get even more highly opinionated. And remember, I am the leading expert on my own opinion, and you're welcome to it. Uh, estate pipes, pipes of the past that I think everybody should at least try to own once 
uh, you know, keep an eye on them on the estate market, find them, look for them. Uh, I had two suggestions from, uh, well, I had three suggestions from folks that emailed me or sent me messages about them. Uh, we'll start off in the Americas. Uh, Kay Woody. And I don't know exactly how to explain the dating of Kay Woody's, except I believe the three-digit date codes are much older. So what you want to do is you want to go to uh, pipefill.eu, P-I-P-E-P-H-I-L.eu, uh, and search on dating K. Woody pipes and find yourself one from the from the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. And remember, during that time, those K. Woody pipes, uh, some of them actually sold for more than Dunhills. So find one of those, give them a try, try them with or without the stinger in. You can pull the stinger out of most of them, so try them with or without the stinger in. Uh, Going another suggestion was uh, Dunhill pipes, and of course, I think everybody should at some time get a chance to smoke one of the Dunhills. Of yeah, uh, my my preference would be for you know the 1950s, 1960s. Uh, they're not quite as expensive as the patent eras, the pre 1954 or 53, whatever that was. Uh, you get into that, you start getting into some pricier pipes, but the Dunhills of the 60s, you know, late 50s, 60s, early 70s, in, in my humble opinion, uh, you don't want to go much more than like 1978, 79. Uh, one, of the, one of the suggestions was for your birth, hill, your birth year Dunhill. Well, if your birth year is, uh, you know, in the 19, early 1990s, um, you know, maybe try one for your father's birth year instead of your own birth year. But that's just my opinion. You know, look around, find a Dunhill that's a shape or a style that you want to that you want to try and find one that's in good restored condition. As with all the estates, you want it in a good restored condition uh, and, you know, find one that's in your budget. Give it a shot. Uh couple other pipes, barling, in particular, barling, pre-transition barlings. So again, you're looking for those three-digit shape codes on barlings. Uh, you want to, you, you definitely need to give those a try, in my opinion. Uh, barling is a completely different taste experience than Dunhill, but at the same time, same quality, same level of attention to detail in the old barlings as there was in the in those old dunhills of that era uh, for style try sassini and camoys and again you're looking for those uh, with camoys you're looking for the ones with the three part c the the this where the c is three separate hole drillings uh, and you can see little black outlines of the three holes when you look at the c uh, Sassini, you know, it, it's really simple in my opinion is if you just stay with the with the ones that don't have shape numbers and stay with the ones that have shape names, cities, towns, stuff like that. Those are, you know, those are great. Uh, so you've got the, you've got those classic English factories. And remember most of the current pipe production is kind of based off of what happened in England in the 1920s, thirties and forties. They're, you know, they're curing their aging process, they're, they're drilling, 
their shaping. So pay close attention to those. And if you haven't had a chance to try one or owned a English-made pipe from the 1950s, 1960s, you can't go wrong with you know Barling, Sassini, Camoys, Dunhill. All three are you know all four are going to be great for you. Um, on the on the Danish pipes, if you want to learn what was really going on at the beginning of Danish, uh, you know the Danish pipe industry, find a Stanwell that's uh, that has the registration stamp on it. It'll say RGD, and it may have a number in there, and that's kind of like their version of a patent. But find one of those, and that gets you back at least into the 70s, maybe into the 60s. Uh, and that's when you've got some of the great Danish pipe makers that are coming out of, out of uh, Stanwell and starting to do their own stuff. You'll see some of their shape influence in there. Uh, you can also look for some of the W.O. Larson handmaids and the, you know, the, the older ones are made by, you know, some of the older classic Danish pipe makers. Uh, but again, that will, that'll give you a chance between W.O. Larson and Stanwell to see what the kind of what the foundation is for the Danish pipe market that we have now. Uh, you can even throw in their, uh, Previn home and the freehand pipes and he kind of started that going so look for you know look at that uh those are just my suggestions i do think that every pipe smoker if you haven't tried one of those older classic you know some of the older stuff you're kind of missing out and you really need to uh you, you really need to try them you may not like them yeah, they may not become your most favorite pipes, but they will become pipes that will start to teach you some stuff. Uh, and, you know, oftentimes on the estate market, they're not bad. All right, in uh, just a moment, part one of Storytime with the McNeils. This is Internet Radio. Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achilles Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs, comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. And we are back. All right, so here's what happened. I sat down with uh, both Mike and Mary McNeil on the phone with me uh, over this past weekend, and this is the first part of my discussion with my very dear friends, Mike and Mary, and this goes way back to, uh, uh, I think we start off about 10 years before McClellan began. Mary, you want to you take, us, take us all the way back to the beginning of the idea of McClellan and how did it come about? Well, to go back to the beginning of McClellan isn't going quite far enough. Uh, you, 
You have to go back to uh, Carl Ewa and to the loss of his job in the electronics industry <laughs> and his not knowing what to do with himself. And his mom and I sat down with him and said, what do you love? And he said, well, I love, I love my pipe. I love smoking my pipe. And we said, well, uh, what about uh, going to one of the shops in town, Englanders downtown or Diebel's on the plaza, and see if you can get a job and, uh, and work with it more? Uh, and so he said, all right, I'm going to do that. So he went to Diebel's and became a salesman. And it was through that that he had ready access to all kinds of tobaccos and at, at reasonable prices being a, an employee. <laughs> and we would take those home to his grandparents' house where we spent a lot of time because they were just lovely people, the McClellans. Dr. and Mrs. McClelland. Grandpa was a, a dentist. He made dentures, and he was very well-respected in Kansas City. Uh, he had written a book that was used at the university. Uh, he was very good at uh, forming dentures that corrected problems that people had. So he would sit in a typical night of our experiments, our... Uh, uh, tasting and testing and picking a part of these uh, blends. He would be at one end of the kitchen table with a Bunsen burner making dentures, and we would be at the other end with uh, mirrors, magnifying glasses, big lights, pulling apart these blends to see just what they were. What were they made of? And it was through Diebel, uh, his connections, that we managed to get leaf from not just retailers, but a, a step back at, at the leaf processing uh, level. And uh, we began to uh, make up blends. And uh, <laughs> as these were, uh, they, they would be shown to Fred Diebel and uh, he kind of began to say, hey, this is a pretty good thing. I think we could make a business here. We could create our own blends. We don't have to just have what other people make. And uh, he, first step, he uh, uh, rented space under Sherry Bridles on the plaza, and put mixers in the cave, and began making aromatic blends. And then, as these were successful they began talking about actually having a factory uh, and, and going up to Canada and getting equipment that, that existed up there at the time. This would have been about 1968. Wow. Uh, but Kansas City is, uh, is a place that has a lot of industrial caves, with businesses in the caves. It's wonderful because you have a very uh, constant humidity, constant uh, temperature. Uh, you really don't have much in the way of, uh, of utility expense. And huh. so uh, they, they created a, a factory at the caves at 95th and Holmes. And 
we began on this this uh, this journey. Not McClelland yet. I was a little part of it. I mean, at least in terms of of testing, and I was just there, you know, participating. And I designed the labels for the initial Devil blends. And we created a little brochure to talk about them, and I was part of that. Um, we <laughs> now is the is the uh, Grandpa McClellan? Is that the same one that the whale logo is inspired by? No, no, the whale logo came from a story in my family. Okay, uh, my father came to America uh, at the age of seventeen by himself little farm boy from Greece, and he uh, came by boat. took a long time, and uh, he was kind of scared and uh, always thinking he wanted to go home. <laughs> he was sick, and, and one day uh, he was looking out, though, and he saw a uh, pod of, I think they're called a pod in a group, uh, of whales. Uh, and it was just the most beautiful, most thrilling thing he'd ever seen. And that experience changed his mind. He, he stopped being uh, fearful and uh, homesick. And he started looking forward to the adventures that would await him. And uh, so when we were thinking about what kind of a, an emblem we would want for the company, we thought of that story. And we yeah. thought uh, we would have the whale and the sea and the moon. We always liked the moon. And, uh, and then a wreath of tobacco. And so I drew it. And uh, that was the beginning now the label, the the emblem that that most people are familiar with now, uh, was one that was created. Uh, mine was black and white, you know, and then we we had it embossed and had gold and all that. But uh, Hugo Mesa, who was Barry Levin's brother-in-law, who lived up there in uh, Vermont, out in the woods very near Barry. Uh, he created for Barry to give to us uh, a, a version of our emblem that was stained glass with a wooden whale and uh, the wreath of, of uh, le uh, tobacco leaves and uh, ribbon all in wood. It was beautiful, wow. and we had our uh, a photographer who was our next door neighbor in our first uh, factory location after the house. We had him uh, take a photo of it, and he he created a piece of plywood with a hole in the middle so this thing could sit <laughs> like it was and have backlighting, and he put uh, black velvet over the background, and. Uh, it was a beautiful photograph of a beautiful emblem, and we used that as soon as, you know, after we got it. We used that all the time. So so let, let's back up a little bit. So Carl's working in the, in the caves, and Diebels has uh, – Diebels develops quite a wholesale distribution business of their own tobaccos at that time? 
Oh, yes, selling to other shops. Because yeah. uh, shops were buying uh, private label tobacco. Uh, what was the name of that company? Amer? Amer Blends? Amar. Amar. Okay. And uh, so uh, they were able uh, to make their own at a better price, I think, and of quality that they liked even more. And, Mike, is that where you get involved in the business, in the caves? Right. I got there in 1973 when I was 17, and they were bad caves, but we were in them. 400-pound <laughs> rocks falling out underneath by the cars occasionally. Water coming through. You may have water coming through the cave ceiling. You can have problems. <laughs> so, it's um, not going to be a cave for too fact, long. In fact, at one point after we were gone from there, Part of the ceiling caved in and mashed a cargo, giant cargo truck down to one foot. <laughs> and the guys had just gotten out two seconds earlier. So they were dangerous caves, actually. Uh, actually, I had some cave fish in a pond in there. I used to go exploring a bunch of it. But those were the old days, Brian, when I was inquisitive. I'd go through them again, even at my age, if somebody would go with me in case I fell down and I couldn't get out. But nobody will go. So, and, but they're all actually flooded out now. I mean, it's pathetic. You know, you, re, you try to go back in the past and you drive by where the mouth is and there's, you know, 25 feet of water in it. And we'll uh, take a break right here while Mike gets himself out of a cave. Meet Aaron, one of the most important people at SmokingPipes.com. In our shipping department, he's one of the cogs in the highly efficient wheel, if you will, that's responsible for making sure your order goes out right every time. Ain't that right, Aaron? I don't know all about that cog and the wheel stuff, but I do know at SmokingPipes.com, I'll take my work very seriously. Pulling tents of tobacco, weighing bulk tobacco, triple checking orders, and getting them out the door. Since it's so easy to order from SmokingPipes.com, you're keeping Aaron pretty darn busy. Look at him go, go, go. <laughs> in fact, it's been a challenge to get him to stop long enough to say hello. But Aaron doesn't mind. He loves his job at SmokingPipes.com. Why is that, Aaron? Because I don't just ship pipes. I smoke them. Gotta run. <laughs> just log on to SmokingPipes.com or call us at 1-888-366-0345. We are quality. We are experts. We are SmokingPipes.com. And we are back, and we found Mike in a cave, and we'll continue right where we left off with Mike and Mary McNeil. Mary, where does the idea for McClellan come up? I mean, how do how do you how do you break off from Deebles? Oh well, you know, Carl was very creative, and uh, he kept wanting to do different things more and more and fred had enough products he didn't want any more he said i'm happy i don't want to do anything more and so uh then came to carl uh the idea of uh of having our own business and in this there were three of us uh there was carl and then bob benish who had been his best friend since kindergarten and then i came into it 
we we were married in 1967, and that's when all these. That's when I was introduced to pipe tobacco. So McClelland, uh, we were talking about it all the time with Grandma and Grandpa, and he said, "Well, we've got this basement, you know, you can start there." And so, okay. And it was a duplex basement, so we really had both sides. And I got there in 1980, desperate to get in there so I could continue. I, Brian, I can't do anything else. I mean, I, <laughs> if you tell me to cut a two by four and a half, I got a problem. But the only thing I knew I could do is tobacco. And the, and the first day I had, well, first day I had me labeling cancer right off. Then the next day I'm shut. I'm pitch forking cased burly in a rotary dryer, which is now a that long, was in. That yeah, was in the Diebel factory, yeah. Right, and it's it's long tube with piping in it fed by a steam boiler to heat it and really caramelize the casing that's on the leaf. They still do it, and, uh, you know, worldwide. And I realized that's what I want. And the other teenagers are complaining. It's on their head, this and that. And I thought, man, I love this stuff. <laughs> what is this? I didn't have any clue what it was. But I liked it, and it's really the only thing I felt comfortable doing. And then I went to McClellan in 80 in the basement, and we stayed there, and then we got our own building in 85. But uh, I, I knew it. I mean, that's it. And the experience, I'd, I've probably done over 7,000 experiments in my career and we were doing them all the time at Diebel's. But, you know, you start doing them and you really don't you don't get it. You know, you try all these various things. But we weren't doing, you know, we'd go in and go home at 5. or We weren't really after it day. And Carl was more probably thinking about it at home and this and that. But we weren't really down or doing them day and night until McClellan. Then we were doing them day and night. I mean, hundreds and hundreds trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work, and you have way more failures than successes. And then you start questioning everything you do. It becomes like a giant Rubik's Cube with no solution. It feels like that. And uh, that's that's how we came up with the different ones. We had 230 products when we quit, and it was just massive. And did I have more ideas? Well, yeah, but... You know, we had to have the materials that we wanted for our specific taste and our specific things we were going for. In our opinion, it wasn't available to get what we wanted. I mean, I was going to make, I was, it, I don't know if it would have worked. I was going to ha have some, make some tubes and press stuff in there, slice it a certain way, pretty big disc and call it McClellan pancakes or something. I mean, I had all these ideas even when I quit. I had <laughs> other ones. I God, I want to do this. But you've got to have what you really need to do it. You can't just take something and shove it in the tube and go, well, there it is. I just, I, I couldn't stomach that, you know, and, and uh, the consumers wouldn't either. They'd say, what, what happened, Mike? You hit your head on a car fender or what you know, what happened to you? And you get to the point where, well, everything goes away at some point. That's what we had to do. There wasn't any choice. And uh, 
you know, the role of choice was you just put out something inferior to what you've been doing. And the, the consumers are sharp. I've met some of the sharpest guys in my life as consumers tasting this and that. And even if there's some slight change, I'd have a few. Like John Hayes. I know John B. Hayes tobacco for years. He's retired now and runs around and fly fishes every 15 minutes. But, it, but if, I, if something slightly changed, like a crop year, he'd call me, Mike, uh, I notice a slight difference. And I mean, you get this perception from some of these guys, it's shocking. You don't tell them anything. They just perceive it. And they're right. You know, not, not that it was a bad thing. He just noticed something. So the pipe smokers, a lot of them, are very, very sharp, sharp guys. And, and they know what good is, a lot of them. Let, let's go back to the beginning of, of McClellan. So what what year is that exactly when you decide to branch off and open up McClelland? Uh, McClellan started in 1977. Uh, Carl and Bob uh, left Diebel's. Uh, they had both been salesmen together there uh, in the beginning. And then uh, Carl had run, he had managed all the Diebel stores back when there were a lot of them. And then uh, they were in the factory. I think Bob was not so much in the factory. He not was much. in the stores most of the time. But anyway, uh, we decided, and they began by, by getting equipment uh designed and having it fit into the <laughs> mcclellan basement and uh then in gosh i left yellow in i think it was like july or august of 77 and i i quit uh, i was editor of the corporate publications there for like six or seven years and uh I quit uh, in order to get what vested interest I had in, in profit sharing in order for us to be able to start <laughs> McClellan. We didn't have any money. And so at the very end, I was actually working uh, for the American Trucking Associations. Uh, we had a festival in town and a uh, it was a, a trucking festival in that was along with the truck rodeo that was held in Kansas City that year. You don't need to know about this. I don't know why I'm off on this tangent. Anyway, uh, that's when it started, in the fall of uh, 77, actually. Uh, what kind uh, of research did you do to, to start it up, or, did, or did, did Carl and did they know everything they needed at that point? Well, they they got all the equipment and everything together, and uh, we got sources for the leaf and for any flavorings that we that we were going to have. And I did uh, design work on on labels and uh, brochures. And we had an, uh, in the beginning, we were not going to sell to stores. In the beginning, we thought we could sell just directly to consumers. Maybe <laughs> if we had had the internet, we would have gone in another direction. But our money quickly ran out uh, at, in that time period. And so then we, oh gosh, within 
three or four months, we realized that we were going to fail if we didn't start uh, going through the stores. And once we did, made that decision, we didn't sell to consumers directly anymore because we didn't think it was right to compete with our you know, main customers. Do you remember that first sale and who it was to and uh, the first wholesale sale and, and how it felt? The first person, uh, I don't remember. I don't remember the first person. One of our first customers was a, was a wonderful guy uh, in uh, uh, New York. He was uh, Al Tomasello. He was uh, in the in the building industry and uh, he was a really colorful character uh, oh another one also new york uh, uh we had a lawyer who uh, uh bought the cans and he uh you know at that time they were all uh wrapped with paper kind of like Leon Perrin uh Worcestershire sauce yeah. they were wrapped and then we had the hot wax seal on top red wax for the Virginias, green wax for the English mixtures. And uh, so he got it back, he got it to his office, and he opened it up with great anticipation and realized that he couldn't open the cans because you had to have a can opener. <laughs> Those were the days before the pop-top lid. And, oh, he, he, he really went off. <laughs> so, well, Maria, some of our some of our first at counselor you know bill martin at w curtis draper in dc oh definitely da da Once david Mile at georgetown mm -hmm. and the, the uh and then uh up there in sioux city iowa and des moines uh the, the uh, davids the davids yes yeah, greg toy david was was the father of greg greg's still in business and uh up in omaha i guess and wayne yeah. And Wayne in, in, David, right? Yeah. So yeah. you know, you 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 appreciate some of the some of the retailers told them, well, "I'm not going to take it because you'll never make it." Uh, how many and, How many blends did you start off with, and was it just the cans of tobaccos? It was just the cans in the beginning. Five uh, Virginias and five English mixtures. Now, when you the say English, those were those were the Oriental line, or the what we know now is yes, the green the label and the uh -huh. and the brown labels. Right, right, Brian, you've yeah. got twenty times more variety in your house than we did <laughs> back then. <laughs> yeah. So, so ten items, and uh, not much more to grow from there, huh? Yeah, and we had spent all our money on uh, advertising we we advertised in scientific american you know in the classifieds and we advertised in uh, the bar association journal because we figured some of our best customers were were doctors and uh lawyers and they yeah. were and they have always been and so that i mean that's a whole other thing that you know, 50, you know 40 something years ago there was no internet and you didn't have money to do radio or tv so yeah classified ads and magazines was about the best you could do it was and uh we were very lucky and sometimes we thought very unlucky to have a bank that was 
<laughs> so poorly run that it kept lending us more money <laughs> when we really didn't deserve it. But thank goodness it got us through the time when we were really clueless. I had, I myself, I was truly clueless. You know, my background is journalism. It's not accounting and finance. It took me a long time to figure out what what I should be doing. And and one of my great sources was uh, a government program, the retired, well, I, I can't remember the name. It was, uh, you could call them uh, retired executives who would offer advice. <laughs> uh, was, what was that program called? Yeah, she wouldn't ask me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was standing right there. Yeah, well, and I'm sure you would have been too shy to tell her, even if she did ask. Well, yeah, Brian. <laughs> of course. No, we, we really, we didn't know what the, you know, it took years. I mean, it, I, I'm telling, I told her the other day, uh, I said, you know, for 40 years, close to it, I worked in sheer terror every day. In the last few years, I kind of went to down to a mile well, sometimes strong fear with terror thrown in here and there. I mean, you got to realize, it's not just you doing it. You can do the best job in the world and everybody's selling, doing this and that. But you got outside forces. You know, you when we started, there were probably 40 leaf companies. Now there's primarily two. Well, as these things shrink down and you got mergers and all kinds of things going on, I mean, you can just... You know, we had some damn close calls. You know, 96, Diamond tried to take Standard Commercial over, and Standard were all our friends with 350 guys, and it was stopped at the last second by the president of Standard, who I can talk about now. He's gone, but, you know, he hated Diamond, and he knew he'd, he'd fire all 350 of his people one night, and they offered him $10 million cash to let it go through that night, and he still wouldn't do it. He's rich anyway. But he just couldn't stand the thought of three. Well, it happened in 05. Yeah, so let, like, let, let's go back all the way to, to, those, to those early leaf companies. I mean, you know, I, I'm assuming that, that at that point, Carl would have been the main leaf buyer and kind of knew what he wanted already. But you know what, Brian? For years, the leaf where we were getting our leaf, and it was great, was U.S. Tobacco, U.S.T. that was making coal and scope. Or cope, you know, it was they were big time in in Copenhagen and all that, and and uh, Skull and all that stuff. But we knew Aubrey Evelyn and Randy Cox who were there, and we were getting leaf. And Good, before great. UST, before UST, it was House of Edgeworth because it was, I think, UST, or it, maybe it also was a just another arm of a larger organization. But Aubrey start, our knowledge of Aubrey started when he was a manager, a sales manager with House of Edgeworth. Then he moved to UST. And didn't you go and visit him at the House of Edgeworth? Yes, yes. That was before McClelland. That was really research for the book of Pipes and Tobacco. And that... Uh, was something we did back 
uh, when Carl was working for Diebel, and I was at that time working for the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And we were, uh, I had an opportunity to uh, travel uh, to take photographs and uh, make a booklet for the NCAA uh, for the, our, uh, it was a program that was uh, called the National uh, summer youth sports program and this was through uh, the uh, president's council on physical fitness and uh, and I so I traveled to take pictures and and make up this book uh, touting this uh, really worthwhile program that gave inner city youngsters a chance to get out and see uh, the possibilities that they might not know existed uh, on college campuses in the summer. And so uh, in traveling for that, uh, I took Carl along, and uh, he had all these tobacco-related places that he wanted to visit. Uh, and we, so we, we arranged our travels so that we could do both. <laughs> and uh, we went to New York, New Jersey, uh, and we uh, visited. And this, I, I've tried and tried to think of what this company name was, and I haven't been able to figure it out, but it was a company that made pipes, uh, private label, machine-turned, standard shapes. And they it was a big company, but it didn't even have its name on the door. They were very uh, secretive, and they oh. sold pipes to shops and many times these shops would uh, put their own names on the pipes and say that it was their pipe you know the, the way house blends of tobacco have have often been sold yeah so we went there and did that uh, and uh, on that trip uh, I went to the uh, my, my NCAA purpose was to go to the City College of New York and anyway the next step on our on our travels was into the city of New York where we visited Paul Fisher the <sighs> famous Paul Fisher maker of uh, marvelous Meerschaum pipes yeah and uh, that was just a great well, there's, a, there's a picture of him carving a pipe and the pipes in the back of book yes no, his his, his family's been mentioned on the show several times as just, you know, masterful Meerschaum pipes. Oh, yes. He was he was just amazing. And the Meerschaum that he had access to, those wonderful blocks were just so pure. It was really something. And and what was what was the House of Edgeworth like? Cuz I mean, that was that was a huge tobacco factory then. Yes, it was, and we we were very fortunate to to have that opportunity to to go there. Uh, they had sent samples uh, to the Diebel factory to Carl, and uh, he had struck up a, a a friendship with their master blender, uh, Dave Ballard, and so we we drove in there, and and it was a funny building. It was built into the side of a hill. And the uh, the trucks bringing leaf, you know, the, the way the thing worked, uh, the farmers would take their leaf to the auction. 
and after the auction, the trucks would take uh, the different companies' purchases to uh, leaf processing companies, which are absolutely huge. Our whole factory would have fit in in one of their machines. <laughs> yeah. You had to ride around uh, on golf carts to get from one section to another. Uh, anyway, those huge companies would deliver leaf to the tobacco manufacturer, say House of Edgeworth, in in large trucks, uh, in hogsheads, or later on in very thick cardboard boxes, 400-some pounds to the box. Uh, and I think the hogsheads were even heavier, like 800 pounds. And those, that leaf delivered to the manufacturer was aged two or three years at the the leaf processor's company yeah. uh, to mellow. And, and that's a very important part of tobacco uh, manufacturing, that, that aging and mellowing. And it's something that you don't see anymore. Uh, it's really a great loss. Now is that anyway. where is that where we would get the term like the the summer sweats where they they leave the tobacco yes. in unair conditioned barns and just let it sweat a yes. couple summers? That's right, and it's a it's a, a delicate thing because they have to keep checking all the time because it is a sweat, and if if the tobacco in the in the in the center of a hogshead or in the middle of, of a box, if it gets too hot, it can turn. And so the, the duty, the job of the leaf processor is to keep turning those things and uh, make sure that nothing bad is happening, that the thing is happening just the way it should happen. It's quite a responsibility. It, and, and it sounds a little labor-intensive. Very. That's the <laughs> that is the tobacco industry as was. It is very very labor intensive, and that's why there's so much effort to to change it. Uh, anyway, these these uh, beautiful mellow uh, uh, strips of of tobacco would arrive at the top of the hill, and they would come into the top of the uh, of House of Edgeworth. And then they would be uh, possibly, yeah, sorted. Blends would be uh, built there from the different leaves coming in. And then they had these these big uh, metal doors in the floor. And their blends would drop to the next level. <laughs> and then the processing at the next level would occur, whatever it might be. They might be pressing them into cakes. Uh, they might, uh, uh, what, whatever they were doing there. Then when, it, when that was done, doors would open and pull it down. It would go again to the next level where there might be uh, packaging or whatever. It was different or maybe, maybe uh, flavoring if it took flavoring and floor by floor floor by floor and then at the bottom comes the finished beautiful product in the can ready to go out to the consumer or to the, the retail <laughs> shops brian i have i have two cans from the mid 60s when aubrey was there of edgeworth 
blue cans, which we will open maybe one in Chicago at the pipe show, which is the place to do it. And I saw one open a couple of years ago. I got it from Quentin Wells, who's president of the Kansas City Pipe Club. And I'm telling you, it's a smell that's mm-hmm. what saved that product in, in a large degree is they put cardboard line, white cardboard liners in the can. So it's not touching the can at all. And it, you, you hit, it's got the old key on it, like the old coffee cans yeah. and you turn it and that thing swooshes out and you can smell it 20 feet away. And the burly in there is just, it's still perfect. It, you just, you know, none of these guys back then thought, hey, in 2019, McNeil and Brian are going to open up a can at a pipe <laughs> show, you know, that we made in 1965. I mean, there weren't, nobody was planning on that. Nobody's at rat race thinking, oh, they're going to open up Red Rappery that's 55 years old one day. I mean, nobody yeah. planned on it. It's just the luck of the draw. If it can survive and was in the right environment and didn't get 10 holes, we open it up and we go crazy. You know, and guys pay high prices, and they should. You know, to, to it's part of our history. And we will uh, pause the conversations right here. Uh, stay tuned for more in upcoming weeks. I'm Jeremy Reeves head blender of Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. Since 1990, Cornell & Deal has been producing high-quality pipe tobacco, expertly blended by hand using time-honored methods, unique recipes, and no small amount of innovation. One example of such innovation is our bestseller, Autumn Evening. We start with whole leaf red Virginia and strip the stems by hand. The tobacco is then cut into ribbons and cooked for two days according to our unique recipe to create our special Red Virginia Cavendish. Then we infuse the tobacco while it's still hot with our secret flavoring to achieve the sublime sweetness, deep flavor, and delightful aroma that makes Autumn Evening so well loved by our loyal customers and everyone around them as they enjoy this very special blend. Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. It's a labor of love. Contact your local or online retailer for information. This is Internet Radio. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. And as usual, we will do, uh, you know, holiday music for the holiday season. And we're going to kick this one off with the one and only Bing Crosby. Uh, the The... The one who, I mean, the, the only singer who's got a pipe shape named after him. So no other way to start off the season than uh, Bing Crosby. It's from the album called Christmas with Bing, and it's Here Comes Santa Claus. <laughs> Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. Vixen and Blitzen and all his reindeer are pulling on the rain. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. Hang your stockings and say your prayers, cause Santa Claus comes tonight. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. He's got a bag that is filled with toys for the boys and girls again. Hear those sleigh bells, jingle jangle, what? 
what a beautiful sight. Jump in bed, cover up your head, cause Santa Claus comes tonight. Tonight, Santa Claus comes tonight. Happy days, Happy times. to the bells and chimes, as Santa Claus comes your way today. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. He doesn't care if you're rich or poor, for he loves you just the same. Santa knows that we're God's children, and that makes everything right. Fill your hearts with the Christmas cheer, cause Santa Claus comes tonight, tonight. Santa Claus is coming tonight, stand by. should have mentioned uh, that was the Andrew sisters with Bing Crosby and uh, Santa Claus had some Christmas cheer I wonder what year was his favorite Tuesday, Monday. you've got mail Tuesday, Wednesday. you've got mail Thursday, Friday. you've got mail in the mailbag uh, we're gonna get caught up going back to uh, two weeks ago with uh, Mark Johnson on uh, Die the Wine, D-A-I-T-H-E-W-I-N-E, says, Hi, Brian. I always enjoy the shows. Thanks for keeping me company as I prune vines here in Burgundy, France. I have the show on loudspeaker, so my French buddies have the chance to enjoy it. Well, they have no choice. And then he put a smiley face. Uh, next time you drink a bottle of, and here I'm going to butcher some wonderful French names, but I'm going to try my best. Uh, Chasson Montrachet or Pouli Montrachet or Santenay or Saint Aubin. If you notice a waft of pipe tobacco, it may be me puffing away while listening to your show. Cheers. Uh, that's absolutely great to hear from Burgundy, home of some of my favorite wines and yeah, even Bordeaux, but uh, I, I do prefer Burgundy more. Uh, that somebody's that those uh, those people out there doing their hard work to make me happy are enjoying listening to the show. So uh, thank you very much for that. And uh, someday I hope to come and visit and spend time in the wine region. Uh, going back to last week's show with David Huber on in his uh, whirlwind tour. Newbroom says great interview, guys. 
I expect a review on that new to you Tom Elting pipe, Brian Puffaway Mike. Uh, let me tell you my review. It's the second of the Eltang bamboo pokers that I own, and it will smoke really well, just like the first one. I just got to get it clean first. Uh, then Crash the Gray says, thanks for talking about the most recent pipe show. I enjoy these segments. Uh, great interview. It is cool to hear how much has changed in four years, and that whirlwind pilgrimage is amazing to hear about. Uh, music selection was a nice change of pace. Everyone forgets to thank the admins, tiring away at a thankless job. Ha ha. Enjoy your Thanksgiving, and thanks for this wonderful radio show every week. You are very welcome. And, uh, you know, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for liking the music, too. Uh, writing Rav, Ira says, That was a fantastic interview. I wish I could be a pipe tool inside David's pipe pouch as he travels the world of pipe makers and collectors. Yeah, I wish I had a wife that would be that uh, uh, that patient and allow me to go away and you know, go on that kind of a trip. But uh, maybe, maybe someday. And then finally, Casey Ghost says, Nice show, particularly the Pipe Parts review of the show. Running a show is no picnic, which is why I finally got out of it. No, it's not a picnic, and it's a job where you can make uh, nobody, <laughs> not everybody, perfectly happy. So there. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, I got an email from Mark Irwin, who we had on the show before, and he emailed me at uh, Brian at pipesmagazine.com. And he says, hi, Brian, two things. First, I really appreciated your advice to pipe men on not letting unsmoked pipes just sit in the rack, but trading them up, as I think you said. Uh, I wish someone had told me that 10 years ago and my collection would be both smaller and better today. Second, in one of the last Alan Schwartz Storytime episodes, he talked about the fantastic qualities of natural or natural virgin finished pipes, uh, saying that's practically all he ever bought. My friend Mario Lubinsky of Lubinsky.it, who distributes Peterson for Italy, also has a very high regard for these pipes. At some point, could you talk about them on the show? I know the old factories used to make them. I've seen them in GBD and Peterson catalogs from the 1950s, and I know some of the Italian artisans routinely make them. Although sometimes it looks like they've coated the bowl, which doesn't compute to me, but we don't see them much here in the States. Uh, you know what? That's a perfect idea for a pipe parts segment. So, again, if you have any, uh, uh, have any ideas for pipe parts, you know, fire away, email me. Love to hear them. And then finally, finally, uh, Greg Selman writes, enjoyed the show as usual and especially the music selection. Just saw Bohemian Rhapsody with my eight-year-old son. Brought back a ton of good memories from my youth. Queen was huge back then and was prevalent in so many ways growing up. It's great to see a rebirth of interest due to the movie. I vividly remember watching Live Aid as a teen and thinking Freddie looks a little rough but sounds amazing. He was the very definition of the word flamboyant and one of the best showmen that ever lived. He entertained millions in his short career, including myself, and I will never pass judgment on his lifestyle. Thank you, Freddie, and thank you, Brian and Kevin, for continuing this great podcast, Greg. Uh, Greg, you're welcome, and yeah, you know, Freddie was uh, one of a kind, and yeah, I've, uh, again, I've rediscovered a whole bunch of their older music and some of the, you know, some of the last music off of the last couple albums and have been uh, just 
thoroughly enjoying it. So, again, comments or questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. And in just a moment, a holiday rant. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. kick off this holiday season full of holiday classics well i'm gonna bring back a classic rant of mine and here it goes frosty the snowman two eyes of coal a nose of corn and a you know corn cob pipe well if he doesn't have a pipe it's not frosty the snowman it's just some stupid other snowman all right frosty the snowman had a corn cob pipe it was made by missouri meersham uh but frosty the snowman had a corn cob pipe if there's no pipe you may as well not have a top hat you may as well just make him out of whatever you want because it's just another stupid snowman uh in the night it was the night before christmas you know sat down with a pipe if he's if santa's coming down the chimney with a nicotine patch on i don't want to see it i don't want to hear it don't start screwing around with the classics they are what they are leave them alone Twas the night before christmas without a pipe in it is not the same poem that was written it's not the same story that was originally written it's an it it's an adulterated version of it and it's wrong just like frosty the snowman frosty has to have a pipe otherwise he's just a stupid snowman all right you got it leave the classics alone and don't edit them out because you don't want to see pipes out there you know you don't want to don't want to be politically incorrect well it's the holiday season these are holiday classics and just leave the pipes alone that's it I'm going to try not to rant much this holiday season because the holidays are about, you know, warm cheer and happiness and joy. And they're not about, you know, terrorizing people and complaining about stuff. So there you go. All right. Uh, Lots of fun stuff coming up on the Pipes Magazine radio show. We will have fresh new episodes every Tuesday night posted at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And if they get in your way of, uh, you know, if your holidays get away from you, Well, we've got all 320-something shows available for you to listen to afterwards, even if you miss out on one a week. So there you go. Uh, You know, thanks to Mike and Mary for sitting down with me and doing this. Thank you all for tuning in. And until next time. the clouds when we're together just 
Sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color? Put that down. Hello? Hello?